All right. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3 is where we're going to be at today. If you don't have a Bible and you need one, raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. You definitely want uh, to have a Bible in your hand to be able to follow along with what's going on in the scriptures. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to be finishing up chapter 3 in uh, the sixth dispute together today. My name is Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's awesome to be able to share God's word with you and open it up uh, together today. You know, many people, they like to pride themselves on thinking that they're unbiased, that they, you know, they just, I try to live my life in a way that's really unbiased and I'm really, you know, just as fair as, as possible. But the truth is, and the reality is that everybody is biased, that everybody has a certain matrix or a certain filter uh, with which they view life. You're, you are biased. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you are absolutely biased. You view things a certain way. You have a certain way in which you receive information. Every single one of us has a bias. The, the question isn't whether or not you've got a filter. The question is, do you have a good filter or a bad filter? Right? That's the question. And so what we've got to do is, is, is we've got to be able to build a good matrix through which we view the world. Otherwise, the things we take in and the things, the way we see things, it's going to be skewed. It's going to be off. It's going to be wrong. Uh, most people, they basically build their matrix by asking two, two questions. This is the way most people build their matrix is this. They, they ask the first question is, is this something I want or something I perceive I need? That's the first question that people ask. Is it, do I want this? Do I need this? And, and therefore, that's, that's the way they kind of go forward in this. And then the second question is, does this directly and clearly injure somebody else? And, and if they can answer that first question, do I want this or do I need this? And if, with a, an affirmative yes. Or, and then they answer the second question, does this injure somebody else? And they answer that no. Then basically they go, well, then it's good. <laughs> then I can do this. I can have this. You ever have anybody say, well, I'm not hurting anybody else? And you look at it and you go, yeah, you are, bro. Like you're damaging society and we're all a part of it. Uh, and so even though you didn't come over and punch me in my face, your life is affecting other people. We've got to see ourselves less as independent and more as interdependent, that we are connected to each other. And the things I do, the things I think, the things I say, they are absolutely affecting everybody else. You see, based on these ideas, these questions, people determine, you know, is it, you know, is it something that I want or need? And does it directly or clearly injure somebody else? People determine good and bad based on that. People determine right and wrong based on that, inappropriate and appropriate. People determine what's a virtue and what's a vice based on those two questions. And the thing is, is that this might initially sound like, like a good thing, like, well, that's okay, that, that, that's a good way to do that. It might initially sound good, but the reality is, the truth is that a worldview that's based on me and my feelings only gives me excuse for my sin. That's all it does. It doesn't actually build a worldview that is going to cause me to interact in this world in the way that God's designed it. Really, all it does is make me not feel so bad about my failure. That's all it does. And so it's essentially what we're doing when we do that is we create a false reality to live in and wonder why things are still broken. And so a lot of people, that's what we're doing. C.S. Lewis uh, is a writer and uh, somewhat of an, a, Christian, a Christian apologist. He uh, lived in the late 1800s and most of his writing was the early 1900s. Uh, he's a tremendous thinker. Uh, lots of really great arguments that he had that still apply today. Here's one of the things that he said in his book, The Weight of Glory. He said, I believe Christianity, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The question is not whether or not you have a matrix. The question is, do you have a good matrix? And, and what we need to do is understand that the only good, appropriate, right, correct matrix through which to view the world is through God's perspective that is given by his word. And when we gain a biblical worldview, then we start seeing the world correctly then we start interacting with the world correctly. Then things fit and work the way they're supposed to. And really, that's what we're looking at together today in Malachi chapter 3. It's this. Here's our big idea. When you see God correctly, then you see everything else correctly. That's the, th that's the major thought. If you don't see God right, you're not going to see anything else right. 
But when you see God right, you see everything else the right way. So let's read Malachi 3, 13 through 18, and then we'll go back through and uh, break it down and take a look at it together today. Malachi 3, 13 says this, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say, uh, what we have, uh, you say what, we have, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and, what, uh, and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On that day, I will make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall be, uh, then you shall gain Excuse me. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve Him. Let's pray. Father, as we turn our attention to you this morning, as we open your Word, we pray that you would give us understanding. That by your Holy Spirit's presence, we 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 would be drawn into you, into your presence, that God, you would speak to us, that you would cause us to know you, Lord, that we would hear your word clearly and that you would apply it to our lives. God, that you would shape us and mold us. And and as we've just introduced this whole idea of needing to view things the way that you see them, God, we pray that you would convict us where we don't have your thoughts and you would change our mind to be more like you. God, help us to see things the way you see it and help us to be uh, conformed into your image and not not to be uh, shoved into the image of the world. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, as we look at Malachi chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, the way we're going to be looking at this is by breaking it down into two pieces. All right, we're going to look at the first three verses, 13 through 15, harshness toward God, and then 16 through 18, graciousness from God. Now, as we talked about before, that this idea of having a matrix is something that everybody has. We have a filter that we look at the world through. And when your matrix is filled with worldly so-called wisdom, when your matrix is filled with that, every value you have and every decision you make is going to either be for your benefit, for your comfort, and if it's not for one of those, for your benefit or for your comfort, if somehow you're sacrificing, then it's going to be for your glory. That, that it's, all, it's going to be all about you. It's going to be about how do I build me up? How do I make me feel better? How do I get some more comfort? How do I uh, get those people to like me more? How do I lift me up? And, and the thing is, is that if that's your slant, if that's what you're going for, when God's not on your program and he's not doing your thing for you and he doesn't perform for you, then you're going to look at him and say, you're immoral, you're incompetent, or you're irrelevant. And that is the truth of the way that a lot of people view God. They think that something's wrong with him. He's broken. He's somehow the one that's not on the right program. And the reason is because of a bad matrix. They're viewing life through themselves. They're viewing life through what benefits them the most. And the truth is that when we do that, we look at life in a crazy way. And we try to force God into getting our thing. And here's the reality. God's not really into getting you your idol for you. That's not, that's not why, that's not his plan. That's not what he's signed up for. What he's, what he's interested in is taking you and transforming you into more of his image. That's what the Lord's looking to try to do. So here's a question I want to ask you as we, as we kind of introduce this idea and jump into it. How do you respond when God does or allows things that take from you instead of give to you? That bring pain into your life instead of comfort into your life? That are humbling to you instead of glorifying to you? How do you respond? What happens within you? What comes up to the surface? Because God takes us into those kinds of waters often, not because he's mad and he's mean and he's trying to beat us up, but because he's trying to purify us and cause us to grow more into his image. God's actually doing something in us through those things that can't be done any other way. So so what's your response? Did God somehow become bad? Did he get dethroned because everything didn't get better today? Because uh, I, I didn't gain more because I went through a humbling time instead of a glorifying time. Uh, what, what is my response in that? Well, let's look at this first section together, verses 13 through 15, and harshness 
toward God. Uh, Verse 13 says this, God says to the people, your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. In this sixth and final dispute, if you remember, as we're looking at the book of Malachi, we've broken it down to these six different disputes that God has with his people. And uh, this is the sixth one of of the six. And uh, he's challenging the people in this, this sixth dispute with their false accusations against his character. They've been harsh with God. And when we look at that word harsh, what that word means in the the Hebrew language, the, the, the literal word means to grow rigid or hard, to become hard uh, or to, to treat with uh, severity or to be grievous. That, that's the idea of what's happening, that this is the way that the people are treating God. And in this, the tense of that word indicates that this is actually a pattern of thought for the people, that this isn't something that they just did once. You know, it's not like they stub their toe and they say, God, why did you put the rock in the way? You know, and they, they just got mad at that one moment uh, or, or something happened within them and they just had this lapse of faith or something like that. I think we can all identify with those kinds of things where somehow something painful or difficult comes into life. And then I, you know, lash out at God and, and later realize, what am I doing? I'm ridiculous. I think we can all identify with that. This isn't that. This is not a one-time kind of a thing. This is a pattern of life. This is like a rut that's worn into the dirt road that they constantly fall into. Every time something comes into their life that they don't like, every time something's uncomfortable, every time something just doesn't feel the way they want it to feel, they immediately go into, God, you're bad. You didn't perform for me. You didn't get me my stuff. You didn't do the things that I thought were right. And and here as the people are treating God harshly, uh, one of the things that I wanted to pull out for us together today is that there are, there are three basic identifying qualities of a harsh mentality. That, that when we have a harsh mentality toward God, there are three basic things that take place. One is that it's untrue. That, that the thing that you're thinking is untrue. That, that somehow they're thinking that God has not performed, that God has failed them somehow, and there's just, this is just not true. It's a false opinion that I have about my circumstance or about where I'm at. Or number two, not only is it uh, untrue, but also inappropriate. That, that there's an inappropriateness to this harshness. That when I'm lashing out in harshness, whether it's toward God or toward other people, that I'm, I, I've got this false opinion about what's happening with them or with the Lord. Or also, it's an inappropriate thing. It's skewed. It's slanted. It's cruel. It's needlessly hard. It doesn't need to be as difficult as that. And yet, this is the thing that I'm, I'm coming at it with. And then thirdly, there's an attitude of arrogance that comes with this as well. That, that says, me, I'm up here, and you, you're down here. I'm right, you're wrong. I'm big, you're small. I, I have everything going, you do not. And, and when we treat God this way, it's a ridiculous kind of a thing. To come at God with arrogance and to say, I'm right, and you're wrong. Something's wrong with you, God, because you're not doing the thing that I want. You see, God brings this to the people, and he tells the people, you've been harsh with me. And when you think about that, and you think about the mentality that's going to go into being harsh, it seems sort of ridiculous. How in the world could we be harsh with God? And yet, we do find ourselves falling into these times pretty often. You see, God accuses the people of this, and then the people say right back to him, uh, it says there in verse 13, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? The people are saying, what are you talking about? We, we have not been harsh with you whatsoever. And the thing that I think is important in this is that when God brings accusations against us, it's not just an opinion. You know, like, you know, people sometimes they say, hey, I don't like whatever. I don't like your hairstyle. I don't think those shoes are cool or whatever. Like those are an op- opinions. And, and the truth is, everybody's got opinions. Uh, opinions are like armpits. Everybody's got them and they all stink, right? That's just, the, those, are, those are what opinions are all about. When God brings an opinion... When he brings an accusation, it's not just an opinion. God is the only one who can declare my opinions are truth. He's the only one who can. And for us, we can either submit ourselves to God's opinions or we can say, well, I have a different opinion. We can either be in line with reality or we can revolt and rebel against reality. Those are the only options that we have. And the only time an opinion that you and I have is better than someone else's opinion is when it's God's opinion, because then it's not really ours. We're just submitting to the lordship of Jesus. We're just saying your opinion's right. That's the only time you can declare that your opinion is better than anybody else's. Other than that, 
Uh, it's just an opinion about this, that, or the other. And there's nothing that makes my opinion better than your opinion. It's just an opinion. You see, God brings his accusations against us fairly perpetually. In John 16, 18, it says this. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. And he says, and when he comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. So long as you remain imperfect. Anybody achieve perfection yet? If you have, I'd like to talk to you after service for a couple reasons. I want to know what you do. And also, you're probably wrong. Um, <laughs> so long as you and I remain imperfect. Can we all agree we're not perfect? So long as you remain imperfect, God is going to accuse you. He's going to accuse Another word for that is convict you. The Holy Spirit is going to accuse you of your sinfulness. And just so that you know, that's not a bad thing. That's a really great thing. That's an amazing, gracious gift from God. That he would say, you are wrong. That he would bring that into your soul. That he would allow, allow that weight to, to lean down upon you. Because the worst thing that God could do is just give you over to it. And just say, fine, go ahead, have your way. But when God brings this accusation against us, he does so in such a tremendous way. And, and, and the thing is, is that as he accuses me, it's going to be in one of those three categories, either of sin or his righteousness or the coming judgment. And I need that in my life. I need God's spirit to bear down upon me that way. And I want to encourage you, when you sense this, don't ignore the Holy Spirit. Don't just, don't just shove it off as, well, you know, uh, maybe I just had a, a bad day and I just was feeling bad this day. Or, you know, maybe I just had this random feeling. Or maybe I shouldn't have had, you know, onions on my pizza. And uh, don't, don't write it off. When, when you sense the presence of the Holy Spirit and if it feels wrong, if it feels off, even if you don't have a verse that says it's wrong, even if you don't have a, a way to say this absolutely is, is wrong, if something inside you is saying, hey, that's, that's off, pay attention to that because that's the Holy Spirit's presence. That's the Holy Spirit bringing conviction into your heart to lead and guide your life. And as you submit to him that way, you'll grow more sensitive to the Holy Spirit. You'll be able to discern his voice much more clearly. You'll be able to see how God is leading you. And instead of saying, what are you talking about, God? Instead, you're, you'll be in a position of saying, okay, Lord, what, what is this? What do you want to do with me? And here's the crazy thing. God might convict you about things that aren't even sinful. He might say, hey, maybe you shouldn't spend that much time on that thing, on that hobby or that that's that stuff. Or maybe you should redirect your money in a different way. Or maybe your time should be spent in a different way. Or maybe your, your affections need to be focused a little bit more clearly in this thing. You see, it's not just sin, but also Hebrews 12 says that we need to lay aside the weight and the sin. That there are things in our lives that are weights and the Holy Spirit convicts us on those things in our lives. So respond to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, in verse 14 and 15, we see that the harshness of the people is displayed in verse 14 in two, basically two sinful thoughts. Look there, God says, you have said it is useless to serve God. That, that the people say that serving God is pointless. That there is no benefit to this, there is no blessing to this, that if I, when I serve God, it's actually terrible, and I shouldn't do this any longer. And then secondly, notice there it says in verse 14, um, what, profit is it, excuse me, what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? See that? They also say, we have kept his ordinance. Essentially what they're saying is that um, we, we have kept the law, We've done everything we should do. They're, they are either self-deluded or absolutely insane, right? If you can stand before God and say, I did it all, God. I read your word. I saw all of the laws in there. I saw all of the ordinances. I did everything that you said I did, and I did it perfectly. You are either absolutely insane or you're self-deluded, right? There's no way that you could say that. And, and so they're saying, God, it is useless to serve you, and we've done everything we should do. And so the only thing that's left is you're broken. That's the only thing that's left. And so the people are bringing this accusation against God. Essentially, they actually believe that they're right and God's wrong. They, they, they think it didn't work serving God because he didn't end up or he didn't hold up his end of the bargain. That's kind of the way that a lot of, a lot of us think. It's the way a lot of people think in our day and age. I, I tried serving God. I tried doing things God's, God's way. 
And you know what? It just didn't work. Uh, Tim Keller says it like this. If you say, I believed in God, I trusted God, and he didn't come through, then you only trusted God to meet your agenda. That's not faith. Trusting God, you know, you, you don't lay your plan out before God and say, Here, here's all the stuff I want you to do, God, and, and be a good Jesus and go get me my thing. That is, that's not faith. That is an arrogant, self-righteous attitude. And then when God doesn't come through for you and do your thing, then you turn around and blame him for being bad. This is, this is crazy. This is craziness. And this is what people are saying. They're, they're, this is not faith. This is instead attempting to manipulate God to meet your demands. That's not, that's not Christianity. That's not faith. That's not a biblical mentality whatsoever. And yet, don't we fall into that so often? I question God because he didn't do my thing or I just wonder, God, maybe you don't like me or, or, or I see that they're getting cool stuff and I'm not getting cool stuff and what's going on? I look at their Instagram feed and everything's puppy dogs and rainbows and, and fairy tale you know, princes riding on horses and rescuing them or whatever it is. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I, why don't I have that life? Something must, I don't want a prince to rescue me. Just to, I was thinking more from a female perspective. I got a wife and four daughters, so that's why I think. Anyway, that's not faith. That's, that's not faith. Comparing my life that way, it's not, this, isn't, this is not a life of faith. Um, there are sociologists uh, who are studying, you know, uh, America and society and everything. And what the, one of the things that they're saying is that over the last uh, few years, maybe uh, eight to ten years, uh, that what we've seen is that there is uh, this, it is useless to serve God mentality has risen up in, Christ, in uh, America in a massive, massive way. Uh, what they're noticing is that um, there's a uh, mentality of this that's on the rise in America in that Christianity is on the decline. That's what they're saying. Christianity is on the decline in America. And what we've seen is we've seen a rise of the nuns. And what that doesn't mean is, you know, Catholic ladies that wear black robes, not the rise of those, but uh, the rise of the nuns, meaning that when people are filling out different, you know, uh, forms and things, they're no longer self-identifying with Christianity. They're just checking the box nun. And so what we've seen is that there's been this mass exodus from Christianity into nothing, into just none. And sociologists look at that and they say, look, Christianity is, is dying in, in America. And while it's true that mainline denominations are hemorrhaging, all of the mainline denominations are, they are people are leaving mainline denominations in droves. Uh, it, it is, they, they are abandoning all of the, the religious uh, things that are, are uh, in common with that. Um, essentially, the reason they're doing that is because there's no more social benefit to religion any longer. There used to be in our country, there used to be a social benefit for being Christian. You know, people would say, well, I'm going to go choose that doctor because they're Christian, or I'm going to go to this lawyer because they're Christian, or I'm going to, you know, go over and shop at that store because it's owned by Christians. That used to be the way that our country functioned, but that has shifted. It's no longer taking place any longer. It's no longer a value to be a Christian. Now it's, now it's actually a liability. And if you don't bake a cake for certain people, you'll probably end up in court. That, that's the way our culture has shifted. And and because of that, because of that reality, people are abandoning religion. They're abandoning Christianity. And, and the truth is that while that's true of mainline denominations, I, I want to tell you that it's actually the opposite of evangelical, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. It's actually the opposite. They're actually growing. No matter what size they are, whether it's small, medium, large, it doesn't matter. If they hold to the scriptures and they teach the Bible, those churches are actually growing. And so don't believe what the sociologists are saying. And when you hear things are saying about Christianity's dead and Christianity in America is on the decline, it is not true. Yeah, it's true of the, the you know, Presbyterians and the Lutherans, and it's, it is absolutely true of those denominations but it, and whatever other ones I didn't mention. But it's not true of evangelical Christianity. Those who teach the Bible, it's, it's not true. It, it turns out people don't need more religious jargon. They don't need fog machines and laser shows and pep talks. They need truth. That's what they need. We need scripture. Yeah, amen. We need the Lord to speak to us through his word. That's what we need. And so, so what's happening within these mainline denominations, you know what they're doing? They're abandoning the scriptures. And, and just like what we read in Revelation, where Jesus says, I will remove my lampstand. That's what's happening. 
their influence is gone because they've abandoned the Lord. We've got to hold to the Lord and to his word and not blame him as bad when things don't go the way that we think that they should. Now, in this, in verse 15, what we see is that the, the second half of their issue it, it, with God is uh, that, number one, they, they didn't get what they thought they deserved from him, but also they're claiming that he's bad because he's actually given the blessing they should receive to other people. Look at verse 15. So now the, we call the proud blessed and those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. If this is a sports thing, if the, like think of you know we're we're playing sports like let's say you know Jerry and I are playing uh, basketball and I'm dominating him because that's just what would happen. Um, <laughs> thanks, Jerry. Um, now, if you know if Jesus is keeping score for us, and every time I score, he puts a, a tally mark in Jerry's you know column. Eventually, I'm going to be like, Lord, you've got to figure out how to keep score better. Like, what's wrong with you? I scored, not him. That's what the people are saying. We're doing right. We're doing what we're supposed to do. We're dominating. We're winning. And you're giving our blessing to them. What's wrong with you, God? What are you doing? Have you lost your mind? That's the accusation. And God's saying, you're being harsh with me because you're, you're not seeing what's going on. They're, they're blaming God. They're saying, God, it's your fault we're losing. And this isn't unique to them. We tend to do the same thing. When we don't understand what God's doing or we don't understand what God's not doing, when we, uh, we think that maybe we know better, we tend to do the same thing to the Lord. We tend to blame him that way. Hey, turn in your Bibles real quick to Psalm 73. I want to show you a psalm where uh, this actually takes place. It's a psalm of Asaph. And he works through this mentality in Psalm 73. So I want to read it with you. We're actually going to read the whole psalm. Psalm 73, um, I'm not going to really comment very much because I think that it, the argument that is made lays out fairly, uh, fairly well through the psalm. It's 20, what is it, 28 verses. Um, but uh, I just want to read through it real quickly with you and uh, just point out one thing. Notice it says here, Psalm 73, 1 says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such are as pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost sl- uh, stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see that? See how it's setting up? When I saw the people who shouldn't be getting, when I saw them getting, it it was wrecking my faith. I was having trouble with it. Notice verse 4. For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than a heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore, his people return here and waters uh, of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. You ever felt that way? You ever looked at that, those people, those, you know, the, those people who don't deserve the blessings that, uh, of the Lord, and it seems like they're living in this completely unholy way. They're living completely abandoning God. They even scoff at God and say they hate God, and it seems like they, everything just gets better. They, they get more money. They get the promotion. There are people like them. It's like, what is going on with their lives? What is happening? What's going on with that? Now, notice what it says in verse 15. If I, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue in the uh, generation of your children when I thought how to understand this. It was too painful for me. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. Then I understood their end. Surely you will set them in slippery places. You will cast them down to destruction. Oh, how how they are brought to desolation in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes. So the Lord, when you awake, 
you shall despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I'm that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For indeed, those who are afar from you shall perish. You have destroyed those who desert you for harlotry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. You see how it it turns around? The moment of change comes in verse 17. The moment of change happens in verse 17 because through the eyes of faith, we can see that we're not the hero, but that we're all villains. And unless God intervenes, unless his grace rushes in, and unless he saves me, I go the way of everybody else. And even though it might seem like they're getting more here and now, when I consider the end, that's what verse 17 says, when I realized that the closest that they're ever going to get to heaven is right here, right now, it shifted my entire perspective because I realized the closest I'm ever going to get to hell is right here, right now. And when my perspective shifts and I look up to eternity and I realize, I realize that God is in control, then I can trust him even if it doesn't seem right. Even if it doesn't seem like it's going the way I want it to go. That God still remains good and we all deserve hell apart from his salvation. So Lord, would you, would you save me? Would you save them? Would you save us? Would you intervene? You see, harshness toward God is always unjustified and it always requires repentance. It doesn't mean that you can't express that harshness toward the Lord and and that, that, that lack of understanding like we see in Psalm 73, but it does mean that you need to change, not God. God's not the one that needs to change. I'm the one that needs to change. And when I'm in his presence, when I come to him and I realize I was foolish, I was ignorant, then God can change me. Then God can shift my mind. All right, go back to Malachi chapter three. And we'll look not only at this first section of harshness toward God, but graciousness from God in verses 16 through 18. It says in verse 16, then those who feared the Lord and spoke to one another and the Lord listened to them and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. One of the massive concepts that comes through in, in this first section and also in this section, second section is that God, in, in all this dispute, is that God is listening, that he's paying attention, and that even more than that, he's recording what's taking place. He's actually looking at what's happening. You see, the, the people are basically saying, the bad guys are getting all the good stuff and you don't care. And God's saying, no, I, t- I completely know. I know exactly what's happening. I know exactly what's taking place, and I'm actually writing everything down. Here we see that those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and God was listening to that. That that here, the the believers, the, the people who have faith in the Lord, they get together, and they're talking together about the things of God. And they're encouraging one another in the things of God, and God's ear is bent toward them. He's leaning into what they have to say, and he's writing it down. He's writing it down. Notice it says there that it was written uh, before them for those who feared the Lord. That that God's writing down the things that they're talking about for their benefit. That that as you have conversations about the things of God, God remembers that stuff. He remembers those things. When you're thinking about the things of the Lord, he remembers that. He writes it down and he wants to reward you for it. What a crazy idea. The only reason I even have a good thought in my head is because God put it in there. And then he wants to reward me for that? What a crazy and gracious and amazing God. He's listening. He's paying attention. You see, what the self-righteous and arrogant sharply uh, um, and harshly accuse God of is contrasted with the fear-filled and humble have to say. In Matthew 12, 33-37, Jesus says it like this. A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad, right? We get that? That's the way that you say, you know, you you pick uh, an apple from a tree and you bite it and you're like, oh, that's a gross apple. That's a bad tree. 
right? That's the way you connect it, uh, the, the dots. So Jesus takes that idea and he says, here, set this up for you. And then he's talking to the religious leader and he says, you brood of snakes, how could evil men like you speak what is good and right for whatever is in your heart determines what you say? A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from a treasury of an evil heart. And I tell you this, you must give an account on judgment day for every idle word you speak. The words you say will either acquit you or condemn you. Here's what Jesus is saying. What is on the inside shows up on the outside. That's just the way that it goes. If you want the outside to change, you don't change the outside, you change the inside. And the only way that your inside changes, the only way that you have a hope of your inside changing is if Jesus intervenes and he puts his heart into you, he puts his life into you, he purifies what's going on within you. Because what's on the inside is shown on the outside and also what's on the inside, either the fear of the Lord or the lack of the fear of the Lord it's going to taint everything that comes out as well. That that's going to be the matrix through which everything flows. Does the fear of the Lord establish what comes out of you? Or is there a lack of the fear of the Lord? And if there's a lack of the fear of the Lord, you're going to treat God harshly. But if there's a fear of the Lord, then you're going to act in faith and you're going to have this life that is, is blessing and honoring the Lord. If you remember from our study in chapter 3, verse 5, couple of weeks ago, we talked about the fear of the Lord. And essentially we identified it like this, that the fear of the Lord is a combination of being afraid and reverential respect. It's both of these ideas. It's, it's, I like to think of it the way that I don't like the ocean. You know why I don't like the ocean? Not because it's, it's beautiful or whatever. I, I'll drive by it and I'll look at it, but I don't like it because there, there are these man eating things in there called sharks. And so, you know, I have this fear of sharks. It is a it is a f- genuine fear. And, you know, you're like, you're going to get struck by lightning before you get eaten by a shark. And I'm like, probably not. They, I think they're like ginger meat. You know, it's like a, a, it's like a delicacy, you know. They're swimming by. They're thinking, I haven't tried one of those yet, you know. So I stay out of the water. But it's also this sense of respect. Like, I, I don't go in water, right? I do way better on land than I do in water. And so that's kind of their domain, their territory. So there's this reverential respect that I have for them. And it's kind of like that. Uh, not, you know, God's not a shark, but uh, there is a sense in which God is bigger. He's bigger than me. And so I'm afraid of him and God is better than me. And I respect him. Does that make sense? That it's a combination of those things. That, that, that I've got to have the fear of the Lord. And when the fear of the Lord is within me, then the things that come out of me are right and appropriate. This is also a contrast here in, in the way that the people allow their lives to be led. They're either, in this first section we see in verses 13 through 15, that the people are letting their feelings lead their lives. I feel this way, and so that's going to lead, and I'm going to put my faith in my feelings, and then whatever the facts are, that can follow behind. And, and that's the way that they're, they're living their lives. But then we see that the, the people of the fear of the Lord, they're letting the, their faith be placed in the facts of who God is, and their feelings can follow wherever they, they may be. You see, that, there are those two ways that you can lead, lead your life. You can live your life. If your faith is in your feelings, you're going to get insanity. You're going to feel good one day. You're going to feel terrible the next day. You're going, to, you're going to, you know, do things that are right one time and do things that are crazy the next time. But if your faith is in the facts, then that'll provide you security. No matter what you feel, trust what is true. You see, if you, you and I, we need to not let our feelings override our faith in the Lord. And if we don't, if we, if we let our feelings override our faith in the Lord, then it's going to lead us into insane things. We're going to end up treating God in a way that's harsh and inappropriate and crazy. But notice in verse 17 that God takes personal interest in and ownership of those who fear him. He says, they, they, those who fear him, shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And on that day, I'll make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son. He's, we're given two analogies here for, that, for how God describes his relationship with those who fear him. Number one, we can be his jewels. We can be his jewels. God says, you can be my jewels. And a jewel is precious. It's valuable. It's beautiful. 
But something that's interesting about jewels is that they don't start off that way. The raw material of a jewel has to be worked on. There, there's got to be some uh, work done in order for it to become precious, valuable, and beautiful. There's, got, there's some heat that needs to be applied. There's some pressure that's got to come upon it. There's some cutting that has to be done. There's some cleaning and polishing that's got to take place. And you better believe that these are the things that God's doing in your life. If you want to be the jewel of the Lord, it's going to take some heat. It's going to take some pressure. It's going to take some cutting. It's going to, does that sound painful or, or, or like comfort, you know, like a vacation? It sounds like a painful kind of a thing. That, that there's some things that I don't want to go through that God, God's going to take me through. And the reason you're going through those painful things is because God loves you enough to take you through them. He's, he's willing to take you down the path you would avoid because he loves you and because he's working on you because you are precious and valuable and beautiful to him. You see, God alone is the one who can take the raw material of your life and shape it into something beautiful. But the process is gonna be uncomfortable. In Matthew 13, Jesus said this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid, uh, hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. Jesus uses this story, this parable, this idea of the kingdom of heaven. See that? He says the kingdom of heaven, it's like this. A guy finds a, a, a treasure in a field and then he sells everything to buy the field to get the treasure. Here's the thing. The field is the world. And Jesus bought the whole world with his blood. That when Jesus went to the cross, he bought the whole world. Not because he wants a dirt clod floating in space. Right? That, that is not what... Jesus bought the world to get you. You're the treasure. You're the thing he valued. Not the planet. You. What an amazing God. He sees you as his treasure, as his jewel. He wants you. Not only can we be his jewel, but we can be his sons. Do you see that there in verse, verse 17? Maybe you're a, a lady and you're like, I don't want to be a dude. That's cool. Uh, Guys, you get to be the bride of Christ. So figure that out. Um, it's not about being a guy or not. It's about sonship. It's about, it's about uh, uh, your identity. It's about your opportunity to be in the family. It's about having equal rights to the Lord. That's what he's talking about here. You get to be a, a son. A, a son is precious. A son is valuable. A son is cared for. And a daughter, right? <laughs> I got all daughters. And so I, when I think about, when I say son, I think about my girls, uh, that they're valuable, they're cared for, they're precious. A godly son, though, isn't born that way. You have to make those. You have to raise those. You don't get, your kid doesn't come out awesome. Uh, any parents that testify to that? <laughs> they come out sinful and broken and crazy, <laughs> And you spend a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of energy trying to get that crazy out and get godliness in. It, do, it doesn't just happen just because you happen to be born. You got to be born again. You got to raise godly kids. You got to grow godly kids. You got to mature godly kids. And that's a painful process. When God says, you're my jewels and you're my sons, he's saying, I love you enough to work on you. I'm not just going to let you go off and do your own thing. I'm, I'm going to be with you. And this is the third time in Malachi that we see this familial uh, father-son language that's used. And, and the thing that's trying to be driven, the thing that God is saying to us is, I'm a good dad and I'm hard at work raising good kids. And so trust the work of the Lord in you. Even when it's hard, even when it hurts, even when the heat gets turned up and you don't like it and you're not sure, why am I going down this path? I thought things were going to get better, God, and instead they got worse. I thought I, thought I was going to have something happen in me that was going to be for my glory, and instead it's for my humiliation. And what, what is happening? Have you abdicated the throne? Are you an absentee landlord? Are you not checking in on your stuff? No, the truth is that God's intimately involved in those things, in those very things that we would avoid, that God has not abandoned us. He's actually with us. Now look at verse 18. It says this, Then... You shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one does not, who does not serve God. Then, the word then there, it's a word of timing. Don't make the mistake of assuming that what you see right now will be the end. You're, you're, not, you're in the middle of the, 
Already, not yet. You're already in Christ. You're already saved. You've already given your life to Jesus. If you have, and if you haven't, then today's a good day. Give your life to Jesus. Submit yourself to him. Realize that he has died for your sins, that he has purchased you, that you're the treasure he was purchasing when he purchased the whole world. And if you have, then you're already in Christ. And, but, but there's this not yet. I'm not in heaven. I'm not perfect. I'm not, there's still sinfulness in my life. There's, everything hasn't worked out the way that it's supposed to be, that, that I'm not with the Lord yet. And in that, we've got to be careful not to think that right now, making the mistake of assuming that right now is what the end will be. If you do, it's going to produce one of two mentalities. Either number one, you're going to get a false sense of, of thinking that, the, that you have this false sense of hope. That everything's good, everything's great, everything's awesome. I love the way life is going, that this is amazing, and I'm, I'm so blessed to be living in this season right now. And you're going to think, this is great. And then when things go bad, you know, because life's like a motorcycle rider. There's only two kinds. There's one that have been down and the others that are going to go down, right? Like, that's why my wife won't let me buy a motorcycle, <laughs> because she's like, you're just going to wreck it. Um, so that, that's the reality. That's life. So if things are good... If things are, then praise the Lord, but that doesn't mean things are always going to be good, right? You'll get a false sense of hope if you think this is what the end's supposed to be, or you'll have a sense of despair. Things are bad. Things are not going the way they should. Things are going down. I thought I was going to go take a step forward, and instead I got punched in the gut, and I'm on the ground puking, you know? Like, what's going on? Life's, life's taking a great shot at me right now, and I'm not sure what to do about it. Either way, if we get tripped up in thinking that right now is the way it's going to be in the end, then we, we've lost a sense of, of reality. You see, the contrast of this section comes through again with the description of the righteous who serves God and the wicked who does not serve God. The entire book of Malachi points us to the story of humanity, that people are extremely unfaithful to God, and yet God remains extremely faithful to his people. That's the message of Malachi that comes through. That's the thing that's being screamed to us every single week as we look at Malachi. God is faithful even when we're faithless. C.S. Spurgeon says it like this. The same sun which melts the wax hardens the clay. And the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. When you hear the things of the Lord, when God works in your life, when God is pursuing you, what kind of heart do you have? Is it a soft heart toward the things of the Lord? Or does his work in you harden him, harden you toward him? Somehow you think God's wrong. You see, not only does God see everything, but he's also going to reconcile everything. That's what we see here in verse 18. That, that then you will discern between the righteous and the unrighteous. He says that there's coming a day when everything's going to be made right, when all wrongs are going to be made right, when God is going to reconcile everything. There's coming a day when the distinction between righteous and unrighteous will be made clear. And there's a temptation for us to see this wrong. To say, to say, well, I, I'm, I'm the good one, that, that I'm good. And so, all, God, get the bad people. Go get them, Lord. No, the, the right way to see this is to say that, Lord, I'm not good. Everyone's bad, and only Jesus makes us good, and that I become good when he transforms me. That, I, that I don't, I'm not good, and I start out that way, and so Jesus is like picking teams. He goes, hey, you're awesome. I, I want you on my team. That, that's not the way that it works, that he picks all the broken bad ones. And he says, I want to take you in as my own. And I want to change who you are. I want to change you from darkness to light. I want to change you from dead to a life. See, though the entire culture might turn its back on the Lord, you can remain as his jewel and you can remain as his son. That's what it says there in verse 18. There's coming a day when the distinction will be made. So don't let the culture shift you away and push you away and make you think that God's abandoned things or God's not doing what he's supposed to do. No, they don't determine your course, course in the Lord. You pursue the Lord. You hold on to him because he remains good. You see, the truth is everybody's got a relationship with God. Everyone's got a relationship with God. Even people who tell you they don't have a relationship with God. Everybody does. It's not whether or not people have a relationship with God. It's do you have a good relationship with him or a bad relationship with him? That's the reality. Once you see him correctly, then everything else in life just fits into place. Everything else just fits. The truth is that though you don't deserve it and haven't done a single thing to earn it, Jesus has graciously extended his love to you. That's the amazing thing about 
the gospel of grace, about the love of Jesus. That the way that we become the righteous who serves God isn't by trying really hard, it's by him changing us and transforming us. Here's how Romans 5, 6 through 8 says it. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. There is a day coming in your future where you will literally stand before God. It's, it's a certain reality. You will stand before God. And you can have confidence on that day. You can stand before him with a smile on your face, looking into the eyes of Jesus with hopeful expectation instead of shame and despair. How does that happen? Well, the only way for that to happen is for you to turn to Jesus or return to Jesus. That you give your life to him, that you allow him to come in and to move into your life and to take all of the brokenness and fix it to take all of the dirtiness and cleanse it, to take all the things that are wrong and right them, that you allow him to put his perspective into your heart and into your mind. And that as you live your life daily in the fear of the Lord, by faith in the Lord, then you live with a certain hope of expectation of eternity, not being afraid of it like a kid with his hand caught in the cookie jar when mom comes downstairs, but instead looking for the coming of your dad. Dad's home, I'm so excited, and you run into his arms and you are embraced by him. I hope that's the way that you view the Lord. I hope that's the way that you see him. And if it's not, then something's wrong. God's not looking to crush you and smash you and destroy you. He wants to lovingly shape you and mold you into his image. Will you let him? Will you give your life into his hands? Will you allow him to do the work that only he can? It's that work by faith that he accomplishes in your heart and your life. But it takes your submission to him. So will you do that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you for the chance to study it together today. And Lord, we want to, as we read here in Malachi 3 about the harshness of these people, we just want to confess that we tend to treat you the same way. We just want to repent of that, God, and say, would you help us to not treat you like this? To not try to force you into doing our thing and then somehow say that you're bad because you didn't perform for us. But Lord, help us to shift that entire mentality and to say, God, give us your mind. Give us your vision. Give us your direction. And give us the courage to faithfully follow you. So Lord, transform us, make us new, clean us, cause us to be those precious jewels and those precious kids that we might reflect you to this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.